The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawkbox. We are live from the London studio this morning and from Munich in the week that Ukraine marks one year since Russia's invasion. Let's get into your headlines this hour. The US and China then trading barbs in a weekend of high-stakes diplomacy at the Munich Security Conference with the shooting down of a suspected Chinese spy balloon ramping up tensions between the superpowers. No, there was no apology. Uh, but what I can also tell you is this was an opportunity to speak very clearly. This approach of the United States does not prove that the United States is powerful, but quite the opposite. We advise the US not to do such absurd things in foreign exchanges. As Ukraine approaches the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg tells CNBC Beijing is watching the outcome of President Putin's moves closely. Beijing is watching closely what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, and if Putin wins there, of course that will impact their decisions on uh, how to behave in Asia. And right now, the EU is discussing billions of euros in additional joint weapon purchases for Ukraine. This is the foreign minister tells me that allegations of corruption are unfounded. We have nothing to hide. We are absolutely, absolutely open and transparent on that. There will always be people who will be claiming corruption and making various points, um, pursuing one goal to uh, decrease the level of support offered to Ukraine. And cautious trade in Asia ahead of the latest Fed meeting minutes and a core inflation reading due this week after the Dow posts its third straight week in the red. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says China is considering giving weapons to Russia to aid its war in Ukraine. His comments come after a meeting with Chinese, Wang, Chinese uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference, the first bilateral between the two countries since America accused China of spying on it using a balloon. China's top diplomat said the Cold War mentality is back after a meeting that appears to have done little to ease tensions. In a keynote speech at the conference, uh, Wang Yi criticized the U.S. response to the balloon sightings. This approach of the United States does not prove that the United States is powerful, but quite the opposite. We advise the U.S. not to do such absurd things in foreign exchanges because of domestic political needs. We also ask the U.S. to show sincerity to correct its mistakes face up to and resolve the damage caused by this incident to Sino-US relations. Well, Anthony Blinken told NBC what he said during the meeting. Chuck, I don't want to characterize what, what he said. I don't think that would be appropriate, uh, although I can tell you, no, there was no apology. Uh, but what I can also tell you is this was an opportunity to speak very clearly and very directly about the fact that China sent a surveillance balloon uh, over our territory violating our sovereignty, violating uh, international law. And I told him quite simply that that was unacceptable and can never happen again. Anthony Blinken there. Well, huh, 
I think on Friday, uh, the end of last week, we thought that going into this Munich Security Conference, it might be enough that America and China find a moment to sit down, have a conversation about some of the differences. Uh, as we come out of the Munich Security Conference, or at least this Monday morning, listening to the nature of the exchanges, I'm not sure we come away any more comforted about the fact that they at least managed to sit down in the same room and have a conversation. Because it sounds like it was a fairly tetchy event, by all accounts. We got all the sound bites, didn't we? A pushback for both sides from the United States, uh, questions around sovereignty. Blinken effectively saying that they won't stand for any violation of our sovereignty. And then we had it from the Chinese calling this uh, reaction of shooting the balloon down from the Americans as nearly a hysterical reaction. So we had the sound bites that everybody was looking for. But underneath that, there was also some commentary, some massive of the narrative, I think, at least by the Chinese delegation after that evening meeting, the sit-down from Blinken and Wang, and effectively uh, came out of this, the Chinese team saying that there is a, the meeting of the two diplomats has paved the way for the resumption of future high-level dialogue between the two sides. The countries can now talk beyond the balloon issue and come back to the negotiating table on other pressing issues. I mean, that language was effectively trying to signal that let's not get trapped up in the issues the Americans have been saying over the course of the last week. Uh, let's talk about competition, not a cold war. So I think the messaging is there, but just over the weekend, the balloon issue was such a, a hot topic, if you can excuse the pun. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of hot air around, and I don't think it's just a US issue. And the Americans were keen to point out about how much surveillance there is of other nations as well, that there's been a, a ton of balloons sent across other borders, that it's, it's not a US versus China issue. It is a, the, you know, this is not done the done thing in terms of surveillance and in terms of espionage, I think, uh, when it comes to other world economies. Well, I will take your unintentional pun and I will double down on it because it seems to me that all we've seen really is the inflating of the antipathy between these two sovereign nations and the other issue now that's come into the frame as we think about this anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is are the Chinese going to apparently escalate the discord by being seen to very obviously supply lethal weaponry to Russia at this stage. We don't actually know how much is being supplied by China at the moment anyway, but largely I think Western intelligence suggests that it is not hostile in nature or lethal in nature, but there is this growing concern, it seems, that China would be willing to supply this weaponry to Russia if asked. Now, I find it difficult to understand how you can then take a more positive track diplomatically when that would seem to step over a line in terms of two blocks effectively squaring up to each other. Well, we could just turn that conversation to reverse, couldn't we? Because that's how the Russians have been viewing the arsenal coming from the West. And, you know, right from the get-go, whether this was defensive versus offensive weapons that are being sent to Ukraine to aid them in the support. And obviously we've now escalated from the initial defensive type of equipment that was sent across to Ukraine to offensive. I mean, tanks and then uh, the next conversation has been fighter jets. Mm. But it does also just highlight how difficult it is going to be to get to a position around Russia, Ukraine and, and just the West involvement now. But if uh, China is drawn into the conflict and we see that escalation on the other side, then it does certainly uh, lift uh, the, uh, or elevate some of the tensions. We're um, look, Hadley and the team have been working incredibly hard over the weekend to put together some really good conversations. So, so we're going to hear a lot about you know, how different uh, representatives of different countries feel about what's happening on the geopolitical story. My question at this point would be, 
What does this actually mean for markets? Because as you look at the Asian session this morning, we're largely in the green here. Um, Shanghai Composite is up 1.5%. There's a lot of talk about PBOC liquidity going into the market at the moment. The BOJ is not stepping back from providing its support. Hong Kong is up nearly 1%. My goodness, even Australia is in the green only just, but this is an economy where everybody is worrying whether the um, RBC has moved too far, or sorry, the, uh, the RBA has moved too far on interest rates at this stage. So the, the ironic thing here is that there could be a whole lot of very unpleasant language being exchanged out in Munich, and nobody in the markets cares. It's funny that you brought up Australia because I think that highlights the two-track process that you are seeing, despite the geopolitics being incredibly thorny on this issue around balloons. The other side is that the Chinese have started to open up channels for negotiation to get on trade with the Australians. And I think you are seeing that very similar language around with the Americans. So you've got two sides of the coin here. Let's trade. But the geopolitics are still incredibly challenging. Uh, When it comes to uh, the the Chinese and these balloons, just to give you the the stat here, um, balloons, military balloons across the airspace in more than 40 countries across five continents, according to the BBC. Polish President Andrzej Duda has called on NATO to provide post-war security guarantees to Ukraine. In an interview with the Financial Times, Duda said it is important that Kyiv knows it has NATO's continued support and the country expects a partnership with the alliance. His comments come ahead of US President Joe Biden's visit to Warsaw to mark the anniversary of Russia's invasion. Duda also urged Biden to reiterate his support for NATO's collective defence clause, Article 5. The U.S. has formally accused Russia of committing crimes against humanity in Ukraine. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris said there was, quote, no doubt and warned that those who carried out the attacks will be held to account. It's expected to further isolate the Kremlin and could urge international courts to take action. Well, the EU could pull billions of euros worth of ammunition to supply to Ukraine. The bloc's foreign ministers will discuss the plan this week with a final decision expected next, next month. As supplies on the ground dwindle, the joint effort could find opponents within the bloc. However, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban previously refused to send weapons to Kyiv, accusing Europe of being indirectly at war with Russia because of its military support. The war in Ukraine and the topic of further support for Kyiv dominating discussions at the Munich Security Forum over the weekend. Hadley is with us uh, with more from there and Hadley, um, sterling work over the weekend of course and we're going to see a lot of your tape this morning. But just on this very specific issue, how close do you think we are to Europe not only significantly increasing its supply of munitions but crossing the line when it comes to the supply of fighter jets. This is the question, isn't it? And it's one that I've pressed uh, multiple sources here at Munich to to come clean on, if you will, because at the end of the day, the the jets themselves have been a topic for the Ukrainians almost since day one. They said, give us the ammunition, give us the weapons and give us these jets so that we can have air superiority and we can fight this war machine 
for you, as in for the West, because they have no doubt um, that they themselves are the ones uh, really taking this fight to the Russians. And it's interesting, actually, because you know a year ago, uh, we were at the Munich Security Conference, and the question was, at that time, will he invade or won't he invade? There were people who were telling me, um, Russians, actually, who said that this is never going to happen. And then, of course, just a few days later, in those early hours of the morning, the invasion begins. The first person I got on the phone was Dimitro Kulipov the Ukrainian foreign minister. He was sitting on the tarmac trying to figure out how he was going to get back uh, to his country because airspace there had been closed. And he told me at the time, this is an attack on the international order. Um, But he's pretty much kept that theme uh, through the last conversations that we've had, uh, that this is an existential threat um, for the West and for the international rules-based order. And so this is bigger than Ukraine. It's about what the rest of the world uh, is going to make of it, but also how the rest of the world is going to respond. And I think also something that's very interesting to point out is the undertones of this conference beyond the situation between Russia and Ukraine and the West response was one of the global South. And the fact that many of them told me both publicly and privately, this isn't our fight. And we need to be talking about a peace conference for Ukraine, not talking about spending billions of more uh, euros, as well as putting more weapons into that country. But I asked Dimitri Kuleba about the allegations that we've heard popping up here and there about corruption. Obviously, Ukraine prior to this uh, conflict was one of the most corrupt nations in the world. And there have been questions raised about all the billions of dollars that are going into Ukraine and how they're going to be used. Listen into his response. We are absolutely uh, clean when it comes to the use of uh, resources provided to us by our partners. This is why we so um, openly and quickly agreed to, to, to receive this delegation, the mission from the United States that is uh, overviewing the use of resources. We have nothing to hide. We are absolutely, absolutely open and transparent on that. There will always be people who will be claiming corruption and making various points, um, pursuing one goal, to uh, decrease the level of support offered to Ukraine. But responsible... They're just following the money. Pardon? Aren't they just following the money, which is what responsible government should do? Responsible government should understand one very simple thing. Whatever the price of supporting Ukraine is, the price of... uh, fixing the situation if Ukraine loses will be much higher. This is why there is so much support coming to Ukraine. And also because we are not, you know, I think, uh, give me another country uh, that has not asked foreign soldiers to come and to fight for them. But everything we are asking for is weapons, weapons. We We will be doing the fighting. And speaking of following the money, last week when I spoke with Kristalina Georgieva, the IMF managing director, she told me that they would need 80 to 84 billion dollars this year alone for Ukraine just to keep the lights on, essentially, just to keep the engine of of government moving, if you will. And it was interesting in our conversations over this weekend uh, that she said to me she thinks that we're very, very close to getting a fully fledged IMF program in the works for Ukraine. At this point, we are weeks away. Listen in. Our staff from day one from the 24th of February has been engaged to provide advice to the Ukrainian authorities how to move towards protecting the economy uh, at the time of war. It is now a functioning economy. We are seeing this year the prospect of growth resuming in Ukraine after the country's GDP shrunk by 30% last year. This is the outcome of very committed 
economic team, the central bank, the Ministry of Finance, these are remarkable people working in these institutions. So how quickly are we going to see that? Uh, we, we, we are going to be uh, moving very fast. What are we talking we about? Are talking about not, we are not talking about a long period of time. Why? Because the foundation is built through this uh, four months of intensive engagement. Uh, so uh, uh, speed is of the essence. We will be uh, coming to a conclusion uh, not too far into the future. I cannot say any more today, uh, but uh, I know that time is not Ukraine's uh, friend in these uh, extraordinary conditions of war. Uh, so uh, we talk about uh, uh, a number of weeks, not, not a very long period of time. And speaking of uh, corruption, I thought it was really interesting in my conversations with Kristalina. She essentially said to me that she thinks in the year of war that Ukraine has gone through, actually the institutions of government have been strengthened in a way that um, perhaps would not have happened had they not been under this serious uh, financial and physical burden, frankly, of the invasion. Because she said, you know, we're talking about a country that has fast-tracked itself uh, for EU membership. And she said that she thinks that they are well on their way um, to rehabilitating, uh, if you will, those institutions of government that have, uh, frankly, come for so much criticism um, from the West. Also interesting to note, um, we've been talking a lot about how to pay for all of this. And you'll remember in the early days of the war, there was an idea that um, frozen Russian assets should be some, in some way utilized um, to pay not only for the reconstruction and rehabilitation of Ukraine, but also for the war effort itself. We saw last week the Swiss essentially saying that while they've got $8 billion, um, in uh, frozen assets, they're not going to be able to essentially use that uh, that money because it's not legal, they say, um, in a way that would actually benefit Ukraine at this point. Listen in to Ursula von der Leyen's response to that. I was disappointed. Uh, I think uh, this is uh, a difficult choice to put the business model uh, at first place um, because indeed, I mean, we have to have the political will that the perpetrator has to pay uh, also for the reconstruction of Ukraine. And whether it's the oligarchs or the Russian central bank assets, I think it, it's unthinkable that uh, in the very end uh, the international community will reconstruct Ukraine and Russia does not contribute. This is not thinkable. So we have to have the political will that Russia has to pay for the reconstruction of Ukraine. What happens in your mind after there is a peace between Ukraine and Russia? Because we've heard from the U.S. folks that have been gathered here in the congressional delegation about the fact that there needs to be training now for Ukraine's stability after this conflict. And I'm talking about training on weaponry, like jets, for example. Yeah. We are already in the European Union training Ukrainian armed forces. 15,000 this spring, um, up to 30,000 this year. Uh, indeed, so we have to uh, step up our military support. Therefore, I'm planning to work with the European defense industry that we scale up and speed up, for example, the standardized production of ammunition, which is absolutely needed in Ukraine and actually uh, to fill our shelves again too, to replenish. So all these things, yes, we have to step up because we know it's existential for Ukraine and thus for us. 
Ursula von der Leyen essentially talking about a post-conflict um, strategy whereby they would have uh, the strategic ability uh, to be safe. And that would require weapons, training on, on very high-tech um, systems as well. And that's something that, as she said, the Europeans are already pushing for, the United States as well. So the security architecture, essentially, is, is something that has become a major focus in recent days. And we already heard from the polls calling for a NATO-backed security architecture uh, for Ukraine for a post-conflict environment. And of course, the war itself being uh, the main topic at this conference, but also the relationship between, as you say, guys, Washington and Beijing front and center here as well. Guys. Hadley, a terrific coverage. Thank you so much for the update. Ahead on the show, earnings from retail giant Walmart and Home Depot take center stage this week, along with the latest reading on the Federal Reserve's preferred inflation measure. And minutes from the Fed's latest meeting we'll discuss after the break. And a reminder, catch up on the coverage from the Munich Security Conference as Ukraine marks its one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion this week by listening to the Squawk Box podcast. We'll be right back, everybody. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. U.S. markets are closed today for a public holiday. Investors are waiting for the Fed's latest meeting minutes. Those will be due up on Wednesday. Recent comments from Fed officials suggest there could be further rate hikes this spring after inflation came in higher than expected last week. Meanwhile, the Fed will be paying close attention to January's Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index released on Friday. This is the Fed's favoured inflation gauge. It's expected to rise 0.5% month on month. That would be its biggest gain in five months, Karen. And Jeff, uh, US in holiday mode today, but this is how we wrapped up the trade on Friday. You can see it was a mixed picture. The Dow climbing four-tenths of a percent, 129-odd points to the upside versus uh, the reversal we saw take place elsewhere in the tech sector. The Nasdaq trading down almost six-tenths of a percent and taking with it the S&P 500. One of the big movie stocks to the downside was Microsoft. We saw that stock uh, trading lower in session. But again, investors fixated on the path for the Fed. We had a, a string of positive numbers last week. The detail that came through on the retail number, first up that the consumer is still in rude health. And then, uh, of course, as we saw on the inflation numbers stayed across to you on producer prices. Still some heat when it comes to the inflation story. To the dollar. Uh, the dollar trade looks like this. It has been a week where we've seen some dollar strength again and that has uh, taken the shine off some of these currencies. 120.37 on sterling dollar this morning. We're back below the 107 mark on euro dollar. Dollar yen trades a fraction weaker though at this point. Dollar reversing versus the yuan. To the commodities trade, WTI, Brent Gold, it is a firmer trade across the board, but it was a fairly weak trading pattern for the oil markets as we crossed last week. Uh, across the, the trading week, we saw the oil price shedding about 4%. So it is 
reclaiming some of that territory. Gold, though, perched higher, a tenth of a percent in the green. The Asian markets, uh, the early picture is positive. We are seeing the Chinese markets rally 1.84%. That is the strongest signal. Hong Kong going with it, too. Let's get to Andrew Bell, CEO of Witten Investment Trust. Andrew, as we close out the week, we're hearing more and more about inflation, that the mission is unaccomplished, the job is not done when it comes to what the Fed is up to in terms of taking the heat out of prices. What does that mean for markets in your view? Well, obviously, last year, um, inflation was given an extra major kick from uh, the the rise uh, rise in energy prices, which were already rising from the reopening trade in late 21. Um, So, and most of the benefit from declining inflation over recent months has been from some of that energy inflation unwinding. But of course, energy inflation or any kind of inflation is part of what builds inflation expectations. So although, um, if you like, uh, current, current, current inflation numbers are probably being flattered by the fall in uh, oil prices over the last six months or so, I think it will help to uh, make the central banks more patient over the next six months in the pace at which they uh, tighten. What I think that the market has got wrong is assuming that as soon as rates start going up, the Fed and other central banks have to start cutting, if you like, the pivot argument. Well, we've had 10 years of zero interest rates. I don't see why you shouldn't have three or four years of a, a plateau of rates around the four or five percent level, which is where they normally used to reside before the financial crisis. Andrew, as we get going this week, there are calls out there by Bank of America that the gains we've seen so far this year could be wiped out, that if the S&P 500 doesn't get up to 4,200 from the current level, just over 4,000, then we've got a reversal taking place to about 3,800 points, suggesting that we lose the traction from the start of this year. What do you make of those warnings? Do you see a pivot, at least for the markets? I think, uh, I suppose it really depends on your on, on your time scale, if you're if you're a, a trader um, and, or, or, or or running funds with a shorter term perspective, then uh, uh, then at the moment people are going to think, well, okay, we're probably still in a bit of a bear trend. The top of that downtrend is about forty two hundred, and then we'll go and test whether we you know hit new lows or or can establish a higher low in, in a correction. If you're an investor. Um, rather than looking at focusing on the bugs hitting the windscreen, you want to look at the road some way ahead. And I think uh, looking beyond the next, well, over the next one or two years, I think there's room for optimism on growth for for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I don't think the central banks actually want to jam the brakes onto a point where um, the economies crash land, because if they put interest rates up too high, then uh, they're going to have to start cutting them within 12 months. And I would think they would much rather uh, have a, a peak in interest rates that's more like Table Mountain than the Matterhorn. Um, I think the, uh, the the other aspect is that quite a lot of uh, of non-cyclical spending programs coming up over the next few years, whether it's uh, climate change, the energy transition, whether it's uh, friend shoring for secure for 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 strategically vital things such as chips and lithium uh, and and infrastructure renewal. So beyond, beyond the immediate term. Uh, I think there's uh, I, I think there's quite a lot of supports for growth as long as the central banks don't make a, a a major policy error and overkill the economy, which is possible. But I don't think it's their game plan. 
Yeah, so, so Andrew, in terms of um, the inflation target, we know it's 2% here, but we also have seen, I think, in the recent data, some stickiness around uh, inflationary pressures and actually some real resilience in consumer spending. Do you think the Fed would be comfortable with allowing inflation to trend at maybe double the target and perhaps um, stop hiking interest rates and take a sort of watching brief, if you like. And if that were to be the case and the Fed was prepared to sit back and let inflation, you know, bundle along at four or five percent here, what, what would that then mean, do you think, for how you should position your portfolio? I, I think it's unlikely that they will explicitly say we're happy with moving our target from two to four percent because the, uh, the the bond markets clearly, if if they say that in advance, are going to reprice the cost of government borrowing and government borrowing so much higher than it was 10 years ago that uh, that's rapidly going to undermine the public finances all over the world. What I think we might see is a greater tolerance in the pace at which the, the, the target of 2% is approached. And that, of course, that might mean quite a number of years in which it's closer to three than two. What I don't, what I think the Fed is very keen on at the moment is to make sure that the tightening measures they've implemented actually do take effect. And we've seen this whenever the market has a bit of a rally. And over the last few weeks, there's been quite a lot of uh, rather poor quality uh, elements in the markets rallying, such as you know, credit spreads maybe tightening too much, some of the mean stocks, meme stocks uh, coming back into uh, onto some of the sort of chat shows, not chat shows, you know, the sort of the the, the financial blogs. I, I think what they, what we've seen is when you get whenever you get a rally like that, the Fed comes out and squashes sentiment and says, "Well, we might need to keep on rising, and you know, rates will need to stay higher for longer." I, I think they just want they don't want premature exuberance in the markets. But I re- really don't see what how the Fed's job gets any easier. If they if if there is a if if they push rates on to six percent or seven percent and then in a year's time have to start start cutting them back towards three or four again, I think they would lose credibility. And I think also the um, the, 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 the the there are also strategic issues that if you're if you're trying to rebalance your economy for 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 greater uh, security on supply of of chips, for example, and also if you're trying to um, uh, c- c- cover a conflict in 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 Europe, it doesn't really help public support for that. If the if the, your economy is plunged into recession as a result of a potential policy error, Andrew, we have momentum. It would seem in emerging markets at the moment, and in fact, um, Europe's had you know one year highs on a lot of major indices. Um, do you stay with that momentum or are you sceptical? As we, I mean, as we look at the Asian markets this morning, the Shanghai Composite's up nearly 2% in spite of Wang Yi and Antony Blinken being tetchy with each other over the weekend in Munich. Yeah, it seems to me a, 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 a slightly... Uh, they, they seem to be um, quarrelling, but not to a point uh, where uh, they're irre- irreconcilable. It seems... To, to me, that uh, Chinese policy has clearly shifted in the last two or three months a- away from sort of zero COVID and probably away from geopolitical issues towards promoting growth. And I think that will shine through. I think the biggest uh, economic development, the most significant development in the last few months has been the potential reopening of China. It is the world's number two economy. And if that moves from, you know, something like one or two percent growth last year to potentially six or eight percent for much of this, 
that's going to offset a lot of the growth slowdown elsewhere. Um, so, and, and I think on relative value grounds, I know that relative value has not has been the graveyard of investment uh, returns over the last six or seven years until last year. But I think relative value will out in the end, and the, the the relative cheapness or the relative lack of optimism baked into valuations in European markets, emerging markets, the UK, um, means that I think we're going to see a continued period where uh, those markets do better than than the US. Clearly, in the near term, if you've got a period of risk off, you know, because be, because the Fed you know, it turns more hawkish, or because of some sort of you know, re-intensification of energy inflation, uh, I suspect the US will probably outperform in the very short term over that period. But because it's seen as more resilient, uh, more uh, to energy shocks. But uh, but medium term, after six or seven years of tech-driven US outperformance. I think the there's better value elsewhere in 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 the world and I mean I'm a, I'm a strategist rather than a stock picker but it's certainly coming through in in the stock picks from the various external managers we use to do portfolio selections for us. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.